Well, it certainly is a, a great joy to have uh, all of his introduction, but at the same time very embarrassing. Uh, but it's lovely that uh, we have such long roots together as, uh, as I've had with Olive since the, uh, the 50s. I think in view of the introduction, I should read to you what uh, John Chrysostom, who we're going to speak on this uh, morning, uh, would approve of, because what he was in pursuit of was what he called the angelic life, that the identity of a Christian is to live the angelic life. And so perhaps the appropriate passage is Isaiah 6, where we find that the prophet saying that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is so anti-cultural to our concept of Christian leadership that we would say, why in the world does God, uh, with his seraphim, uh, and obviously his cosmic uh, duties are vast and very busy indeed, does he impede the flight of his ministers? Because to cover the feet means that they don't use their feet, and to cover their faces, they don't use their wings, and they also cover their... Uh, only with two they fly. So what velocity they could attain in busyness. Now, I think uh, the person who meditated on this after Chrysostom, because he did also, was um, actually the wise... Uh, uh, successor to Francis of Assisi, Bonaventura, who has a beautiful meditation on this passage. And uh, he associates uh, the covering of the face as uh, evidence that uh, humility is one of the significant traits of Christian service and that uh, uh, covering their feet the great uh, virtue is also patience, that uh, we have to live patient lives. Sometimes we spend a whole lifetime waiting for the fulfillment of the promises that God may have given to us to fulfill. And, uh, uh, and only with two did they fly. And so uh, he meditates on the fact that uh, there's the wing of righteousness, that we are ministers of God's righteousness, and uh, that we therefore and always seek for right relatedness. And also he meditates on the fact that uh, perhaps the other wing uh, which we fly is the, uh, is, the, um, is the whole ministry of mercy, of uh, fraternal love, brotherly love, as uh, Bonaventura calls it, uh, and so that these are some of the basic uh, virtues of being a Christian leader. 
So what we're going to speak about today is so totally countercultural to what all of us in our culture today are facing. But this is seraphic life. And after the death of my own dear wife, after 62 years last October, I have realized there is a thin membrane between this life and the life to come, which means that you're much more, as you get older and facing your own mortality as I am now, that you are living at a time where there's really very little difference (coughs) between the human life and the angelic life. (laughs) In other words, uh, heaven and earth are much closer to each other than ever before. And so it's in the light of some of these meditations that I want us now to consider this remarkable man, John Chrysostom. We're not here to celebrate the liturgical feast of John Chrysostom, which in the Eastern Church occurs on November the 13th, just prior to the Advent season, but rather we're here to celebrate the role of these early fathers, of whom he's a very significant representative in our own postmodern millennial culture, perhaps to have a new seriousness for the well-being of Christianity in the 21st century. As we well know, we're entering now into its third millennium and it's bringing unprecedented changes. I shall talk more about this later. There have been, in the history of the Church, three phases of a renaissance of classical life. We know, of course, the classical renaissance of the 14th, 16th century, uh, when, of course, uh, the recovery of the languages and the recovery of the literature of the classical world uh, revived scholarship in the Western world. Perhaps a second renaissance was after the 1840s in Oxbridge, when um, now with the new colonial empire of India and the Sudan to a lesser extent, um, young men were being trained in Oxford and Cambridge uh, to equip themselves to be the equivalent of the classical rulers. In other words, to train them in classical philosophy and uh, the languages and uh, to have a classical education uh, was to equip them for colonial leadership. And so the colonialism was a kind of replica of the Roman Empire. It was going back to that culture. But now today, since the 1960s, there's been a new revival of classical scholarship. But this time it's not come from uh, well-known documents that have been held in our libraries and archives throughout Europe, uh, carefully uh, recopied time and again by monks, uh, scribal copyists, (coughs) but in the Egyptian rubbish dumps, just small scraps of papyri have revealed ancient classical plays of Sophocles, of Menander, of Sopho and others that were never known to have existed before. They're still scraps, but at least 
they're reproducing a whole new revival of new literature that we never had before. And uh, surprise, surprise, uh, this has become popularized on the stage. So in London and New York theaters, uh, in the last three decades, uh, many of these new Greek dramas, as well as the well-known established Greek dramas, have been reproduced. And yet in the midst of this, there's a great fear that the tech revolution that we're entering into that will threaten to dehumanize us more than we've ever been dehumanized before does call desperately for a renewal of the humanities. The humanities uh, that were previously taught and supported in higher education are no longer government policy to finance. So there's a crisis in our universities, especially in the long-established universities, um, as to whether government policy is thinking more about the vote of the aging population and the health uh, bills that have to be paid as distinct from new scholarship, which is being underpaid. And uh, therefore, there's a whole new question of uh, what will our cultural policy be for all of this. But in the midst of all of these uh, cultural pressures around us, there is with the rapid growth of secularism today, the realization that Christianity no longer has center stage in our culture. It's no longer appreciated even as a national heritage. And so we too need to recover the role of the early Christian fathers to witness to the richness of our Christian identity because the identity of being a Christian is tarnished and it's far more secularized than most of us as Christians realize where it is today. I had the privilege when he was becoming a Christian of walking with Malcolm Muggridge through his early days of uh, conversion. And I remember how mockingly he wrote an essay in 1965 in the New Statesman, which was then a sort of left of centre uh, uh, critical journal among uh, intellectuals of that uh, persuasion. And the title of his essay was Why Should I Be a Christian? When the Red Dean of uh, Canterbury is consorting with international communism as fellow travelers and when Bishop Peck in California is suggesting that every seminarian should read uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover uh, <laughs> then in some ways it's a bit of an embarrassment to call oneself a Christian and so although he was moving towards becoming a Christian he was then seeing it's no longer a badge of honor at all it's a mishmash. Now, one other thing that I want to bring to your attention is that uh, we may be facing in the 21st century what happened with Judaism after AD 67. Because it was in AD 67 with the destruction of Jerusalem 
there was a destruction of the temple. And with the destruction of the temple, for the first time in its millennia of history, Judaism no longer was having animal sacrifices. If you've ever visited Palestine, as I have done, and gone into the underground chalk caves of the Shafala Hills, and there seen far more productive than even Kentucky Fried Chicken could ever produce. These dove coats that were for thousands of doves that were to be offered by the simple peasants as their sacrifice. Or the sheep on the hills of the Shafala, or indeed the oxen in the pens for the wealthy. Uh, everything was based on animal sacrifice. And with one blow, it was swept away. So, this sea change that perhaps we as Christians have not appreciated, though, of course, the epistle to the Hebrews written at the end of the first century is telling us all about it, but now interpreting it in the light of the cross, not the destruction of Jerusalem, but in terms of the cross where the Son of God was our one sacrifice for sins, introducing a new covenant that transforms all of life. The radicalism of that was less appreciated except by a small group of people that began to call themselves Christians. But uh, as far as Judaism concerned, it was such a sea change that by the middle of the second century, the pagans began to imitate it. They began to stop their animal sacrifices too. And you see, when you no longer live a sacramental life in the, uh, in the fact that the prayer book or the liturgy, uh, those things cover you as a Christian, but you stand out and are exposed to meet God himself, as Isaiah faced him in the holy temple, then you have to have a new ethical standard. You can't duck behind the animal sacrifices. You can't duck behind the institutional church. You can't duck behind all the paraphernalia of our religious life. Now you stand naked. Who am I? Well, in the nakedness of Isaiah, he realized he was undone. And so, this is the sobriety with which I'm communicating to you this morning. We are facing a huge cultural sea change in the 21st century. Now, I've selected John Chrysostom for there for a number of reasons. His period, we don't know when he was born, we just guess uh, when it was from other evidence that it might have been about 349 uh, but he lived in the second half of the 4th century which was an era of huge cultural change just like we're facing now he had lived through the abortive attempt of the Emperor Julian to revert uh, the Christendom of the Roman Empire into paganism he lived in the thick of ecclesiastical factions as a result of the councils of Nicaea in 325 and then the council of Constantinople in 381. He lived in the threat 
of Arianism, which of course is what has been practiced by many of our liberal Christian leaders today who don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who don't believe in his resurrection, who don't believe in our orthodox faith at all, though they are our leaders. And so he lived with the awareness that those who deny in Arianism the deity of Christ were sowing the seedbed for Islam two centuries later. It's precisely in the same territory of the Eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East where Arianism flourished that then it was succeeded by Islam. So it's sober for us to think of the consequences of that. And then even within the Orthodox bishops, uh, Meletius and Eustatius, uh, there were these two factions uh, as to who was the one that we should follow. Uh, and so in the midst of that, also, we find that there are also different hermeneutical traditions. That's to say, uh, different ways of knowing the scriptures. How do we know our Christian faith? And so there were those who, like the uh, Antiochian were perhaps more concerned with the literal text of Scripture uh, and its exegesis. And there were those who were more nuanced in their metaphorical interpretation of the Scriptures in the, in the Alexandrine school. Scholars have now recognized, of course, that we can exaggerate the differences, but they were there. And so we today know that there are people in the Bible Belt culture of the southern states who, as fundamentalists, are simply saying, if you're not a Christian, you're going to hell. And, of course, there's a crisis with our young people when you say that, because as one uh, psychotherapist and her husband phoned me in great distress a few months ago and said, our son, who's a doctor and uh, who has two lovely children, and we love being uh, able to frequent visiting them all the time, they've told us that now the children are getting to the age of, uh, of <coughs> discernment, we don't want them to come near you as grandparents. Because we don't want them to think that because we're not Christians and I've, and, he, and, the, and the children have rebelled against their, their Christian heritage and their Christian morals, uh, that of course we're going to hell. So, you know, we don't want our grandchildren to be poisoned by that kind of bad religion. What do we do? Oh, I said, you can always put the shoe on the other foot. You can say, well, you as a materialist, scientist, secularist, uh, do assume, and you're teaching your children, that when we go to the grave, we'll just simply be part of the, the chemistry of the earth and that we will be reproducing the buttercups that come up the next spring. <laughs> so, which is worse? <laughs> well, of course, that can only be part of the argument, but you see, that the fact is, we're in a big crisis. Religion in North America is in a big crisis. And so, this is why it's helpful for us to then have an understanding that our theological education has to be much more nuanced. 
And the reason why we're in a crisis is because most of us have devoted all our professional skills, all our intellect to our professional careers. And frankly, we play Mickey Mouse with our faith. It's something for Sunday, but the rest of the week we're seriously engaged in the intellectual scholarship of our professional life. We don't have a Christian identity. We have a professional identity. And it just so happens that we add on to the fact, oh yes, and by the way, I'm also a Christian. But the, by the way, I'm only a Christian is peripheral. Now, I'm shocking you, but uh, this is the kind of thing that the 4th century was concerned about. And you see, it's interesting that the uh, site for all of this happening is Antioch, which was the third city of the Roman Empire after Rome and uh, Alexandria. Uh, this was a city with perhaps, at the time of Chrysostom, about 100,000 people. And within that 100,000, perhaps 50% were pagan still. Uh, and then there was the divide with probably a, a third of the population was Aryan, uh, or a quarter rather of the population was Aryan, perhaps a quarter was Orthodox Christian. So it was even divided as a Christian identity at that time. Now, it's significant as you read, of course, in the Acts of the Apostle, uh, chapter 11, verse 26, that it was in the city of Antioch, where as a result of the missionary work of Peter, that the name Christian was first used. And then later, we discover that in the time of um, uh, Ponticus, uh, in the second century, uh, he reports to us that it was in Antioch that the word Christianity was first used. So Antioch has the distinction of being the source of both the title Christian and then the later understanding of a society called Christianity, uh, both arising from that same city. So in this highly politicalized city, um, Chrysostom was realizing that he had to somehow navigate between the various rival political identities of being a Christian and rather to seek to understand the identity of a Christian much more in the grand purposes of theoanthropology. Now, perhaps the word theoanthropology is new for many of us, but it simply is based on the reality that all mankind is created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And the implications of being made in the image of God are what, therefore, we have to really follow through. Now, one other element that we put into this complicated story about uh, Chris Austin, because we haven't come to his life yet, is uh, that uh, there was a strong classical hermeneutic that was uh, one of the traditions probably goes back to Egyptian sources, but as you have visited in times past these uh, museums, national museums, and gone into the uh, Department of Classical Antiquities, the, the museum is full of busts. It's full of sculptured heads. 
of great philosophers of, uh, of Rome or Greece. And uh, what we don't realize is that these sculptured busts were the equivalent of what we would have as a, a brochure for the, the, uh, the curriculum for teaching in this particular school. Because uh, often the bust was partly the figure of Zeus, who was, of course, the god of gods, so that uh, the purpose of being a philosopher was to become godlike. Um, but at the same time, there was often a face of, of another god. And one of the most uh, favorite of these gods was Asclepius, who is the god of healing. And so, in the school of Epicurus, which was uh, a famous school in the, uh, in the, Christian, uh, in the early Christian period, uh, in the development of Stoicism and Epicureanism, um, the way of life, philosophically, was a way of healing of the soul, as well as a, a way of life that was ascetic in following certain disciplines. So, with the loss of animal sacrifice, increasingly, in the second century, with famous philosophers like Epictetus and Celsus, with whom Oregon had to debate, they, they were challenging Christians, not just simply philosophically, but ethically. They were saying, who has a better way of life? Who is living more ethically? Because now you see, as we say, it doesn't depend on animal sacrifice to appease the gods. It now is that it's your own personal behavior that appeases the gods. And so now as a result of this, we discover that we have a whole new culture called the ethics of imitation. In other words, exemplary figures that we should imitate so that life and text are not separated word and way are not separated in other words thought and behavior are not separated now you see in our hypercognitive culture we've hugely separated theory from practice and so even our Christian faith is communicated to us in a hypercognitive way. And the result is, what about our emotions? What about the healing of our own childhood wounds? What about the transformation of our lives as families? That's ignored under the radar screen of being hypercognitive. And so the result of, I think therefore I am like René Descartes is, the result is that therefore I'm ultimately withdrawn to being the isolated thinker. And it's what I think that matters more than anything else. Well, you compound that with Jean-Jacques Rousseau's uh, self-conscious self. Uh, you're on the way, the highway to narcissism because you're totally retreating into the I, I, I all the time. There's no sense of connectedness that is relational. So, in this culture then, and this is what we all have to do, is speak to our culture 
very critically. And in speaking to our culture very critically, then we're like the sower that doesn't cast the seed on stony ground, which means the stony ground is the ground that's irrelevant for our cultural needs. The deep soil is when we penetrate deeply into the needs of our culture, into the into understanding with discernment how we should penetrate deeply into the soil of the society that we belong to. And so this is how John Chrysostom reaped a hundredfold because it was rich soil. And what he does is to adopt as his hermeneutic, and when we talk about uh, hermeneutic, we're talking about uh, a world of meaning. What are the categories that make it meaningful or relevantly meaningful? That's a hermeneutic. And so now Chrysostom is adopting and saying, the Apostle Paul is the archetypal image. He is the blessed copyist of Christ. Because Paul is saying that we are to imitate him as Christ imitates, as Paul imitates Christ. So we have an imitative hermeneutic that, of course, when we have somebody as an exemplar and he is the blessed copyist of Christ, says John, then, of course, we'll start having all sorts of uh, ways of, as it were, like the artist drawing a portrait. And so John, in all his exegesis, is actually using epithets, just a one-sentence description or one-word description of the image that he sees in one of the great heroes of the church, whether it's an Old Testament uh, patriarch or indeed any of the great figures of the Old Testament, but most of all, he sees that it's Paul who's imitating Christ most of all. <coughs> and so these miniature portraits that he devised give a stunningly verbal picture of the uh, virtues of the Apostle Paul in vivid, memorable, dynamic ways in their effect. In fact, John has a gallery of some 65 epithets concerning his beloved saint. And so when he's commenting on 1 Corinthians 4 verse 4, John writes, For Paul the Apostle, the vessel of election, the temple of God, the mouth of Christ, the liar of the Holy Spirit, the teacher of the word, the one who circumnavigates the land and sea, the one who scatters the seeds of piety, the one who is wealthier than kings and more powerful than the rich and stronger than soldiers and wiser than the philosophers and better spoken than rhetoricians, the one through who, having nothing possessed at all, the one who was snatched up into the third heaven, that one says, he claims to speak to all the world but he speaks as the chief of sinners, yet being all things to all men. And so each epithet is a condensed narrative of all the amazing stories that we have of Paul's life in the records that we have, especially in the Acts of the Apostle. 
but are hinted at in all of his epistles. So, I don't think, as I go back to the early fathers, I've ever seen anyone who more portrays what it is to be Christ-like than what John is saying the apostle is. And so when he exhorts in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 3 and 4, imitate or copy me as I portrait Christ, we have to say, do I portrait Christ? That's what it means to be a Christian. Wow. This is comprehensive. This is radical indeed. And so one of the things about the beauty of the Christian identity The nature of beauty is integrity. It's wholeness. And so, yes, the beauty of being in Christ is that we're complete in Christ. There's no other need. There's no other way. There's no other truth. There's no other life that we have in this portrait. But of course, as we're struggling in our lives, we're like a portrait artist who does a whole series of preliminary sketches, all of which are trial and error to try and catch the true likeness. (laughs) And so, really, the journey of our life is struggling at different phases of our life through the cycle of our stages of life uh, sort of preach that, and, that, that uh, as we live so the whole role of preaching is living you can't specialize as a preacher it's an oxymoron <laughs> and so who you embrace <clears throat> well Recent scholarship has become so enraptured by this. Let me give you a few of the books. But there's a, of course, my own old friend that I knew at a college nearby where I was at Teddy Hall, St. Edmunds Hall. Uh, The principal there, J.N.D. Kelly, pioneered a book on the biography of John Chrysostom called Golden Mouth, the story of John Chrysostom. There, of course, he's thinking much more about his rhetorical skills and uh, perhaps uh, he didn't quite appreciate the ethical challenges of, of Chrysostom as he might have done. But that's one book in 95. And then in, uh, in Melbourne, in Australia, Margaret Mitchell has written a very much more powerful book called The Heavenly Trumpet, John Chrysostom, and the Art of Pauline Interpretation, which was published in 2002. And then uh, a Greek Orthodox uh, American young scholar called Demetrius Tonius, T-O-N-I-A-S, has specialized just simply on Abraham in the works of John Chrysostom, which was just published last year. So now there's a whole new industry. (laughs) Let's discover this wonderful man. So I hope that the result of our morning together will be that you'll uh, get one of these books yourself, especially I would recommend Margaret Mitchell, The Heavenly Trumpet, and really enjoy that book. Well, 
It was a century later, about 620, that uh, George of Alexandria was so intrigued that he wrote the first biography of John Chrysostom. So the biographical data that we do have is really indebted to George of Alexandria. And of course, even at that period, uh, biography was becoming hagiography. In other words, you weren't quite sure which was admiration and which was really factual. You see, so uh, fiction and faction and uh, because sometimes the hagiographers were describing what they would like to be <laughs> and, and what they thought they would like to be, they then depicted the hero, you see. So that's the, the, the subjective element that we have. Anyway, the story is told by George that one night Proclos, P-R-O-K-L-O-S, who was the secretary to John Chrysostom, peered into his room and found the bishop working hard on his Pauline homilies. All of a sudden, the apostle Paul appeared himself, and he began to whisper exegetical suggestions into Chrysostom's ear. This, we're told, occurred three times. Well, whether it's true or not, what the tale does summarize is such was Chrysostom's dependence and esteem of the Apostle Paul that he just loved him. He idolized him. He wanted to do everything that the Apostle Paul expressed. And so, as uh, John himself says, I love the saints, but most of all, I love the blessed Paul. Now, when we started Regent, I had a similar experience. And it's only recently I've been able to put the recollections together. But the Dean of Sydney, uh, Barton Babbage, whom I had known when he visited Oxford, uh, he came to us to our first summer school. And uh, he had been uh, high-ranking uh, uh, chaplain in the Royal Air Force and had become a familiar with C.S. Lewis. So it was he who invited C.S. Lewis to start preaching at the airfields. Though, of course, Lewis says, I've never preached a sermon in my life. I'm not ordained. Why in the world are you having me to speak at the services on a Sunday morning and these airfields very often inconveniently in the remote parts of the country? So we spend all Saturday just getting to the airfield. And uh, that's how his, of course, broadcast talks then took off and became later collated into mere Christianity. So he had a connection with Lewis. But Barton Barbage came to our summer school. And uh, it so happened that a young journalist, not a Christian, uh, very cynical of Christianity in fact, uh, flew in from Sydney on his way to China to report on the nuclear developments that were taking place in China for the Western press. So he was sitting down at luncheon and, and I was a shy young man, though in those days I certainly couldn't speak out. I was wanting to be wallpaper on the wall and apologizing to all concerned that I was taking their oxygen supply. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and, uh, he was being cynical of Paul because it was uh, in the in the age of liberalism when uh, Paul all messed up the simple Jesus, you see. Uh, so that was the sort of uh, thing that was going on at the time. He was arguing for this. And he said to me, and what do you think of the Apostle Paul? And with a passion that surprised me, I said, I love the guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I suddenly thought afterwards, what have I said with such explosion, passion? I better go and browse in the library and see what I can find about the Apostle Paul. <laughs> so I went into UBC Library, and of all places, my eye caught the, um, the proceedings of the British Academy during the early 1920s, 30s. And there, in the mid-20s, was the um, speech as a new fellow to the British Academy of the public orator of Cambridge, just like uh, uh, what uh, John Chrysostom was trained to be, was to be the public orator of Antioch, though he never took the position up. So that kind of rhetorical skill was, uh, and I forgot the name of the man, but uh, no doubt uh, my brother Jim will remember who it was. But anyway, um, his whole acceptance speech as a fellow of the British Academy was why he loved the Apostle Paul. And so he gave me all the ammunition I needed. <laughs> uh, and it just shows you how God does something in your heart that then becomes your passion. So the reason why I love John is because I love his love of the Apostle Paul. And uh, my life has been punctuated and it's been all around the walls of my study of texts from Paul's epistles. I therefore the prison of the Lord beseech you that you walk uh, worthy uh, and all meekness and lowliness of heart, that's powerful for me. Because I've been in the prison of the Lord. I understand what Paul's talking about. And I think of many other passages of what uh, Paul describes. So what I want you to think about this morning as we close, oh my goodness, I've overshot the time. All I can tell you in summary then about this great man is that... Uh, he was trained by the official rhetorician, Libanius, uh, who was the official public orator of the city of uh, Antioch, to be his successor. He, he said that uh, he was my choice, was John, to be my successor. But uh, in his foolishness, he became a Christian. So he forfeited all his ambitions in that classical world to become a Christian. And then he moves from being an ascetic in the city to moving out into the Syrian mountains, the areas that are now being terrorized by the IS today. You can think of those haunts of Syria. That's where John went into the wilderness and he went into the mountains and lived such an ascetic life that he probably destroyed his health. It was just too great. But it was through his ascetic life, his isolated life as a monk, that he became a monk priest. So gradually he was brought back into the city to
to restore his health and in restoring his health as a young man he was then induced to become a deacon in the church and then he was induced to become a priest not anything that he wanted this was not a career track for him at all uh, this was simply being obedient like the seraph uh, to the holiness of God and uh, ultimately he probably unwillingly was not going to go to Constantinople as the bishop there but he was probably kidnapped so you know it's it's not often we get bishops kidnapped to take up the high job calling of being at uh, the new uh, Constantinople which is the new Rome of the Eastern Europe at that time and of course because of his radical spirit, because of his radical asceticism, because of his quest for the angelic life like the seraph of Isaiah 6, he got lots of enemies. And uh, they eventually prevailed. And so he was expelled, exiled, and uh, under extreme physical sufferings, he died on his way to further exile in Pontus, way in the wilderness from all influence that he might have. Such then is our saint today. That's what it is to be a Christian.